From 1944 to 1945, the 52nd Lowland Division is fighting its way across Northwest Europe. The writing is on the wall, but it's also on the page. The Army Education Branch sends a newsletter out to thousands of men, all pulling together, pushing the enemy back. This newsletter is called The Lowlander. Hello, Andy. Hello, Marin. Hello, hello. This week we are looking at editions of The Lowlander that were sent out to the men between the 27th of November and the 3rd of December 1944. Yeah, and between us, like a couple of paper boys picking up the headlines, we'll be digging a little deeper into some of the news stories that the men of the 52nd Lowland Division would have read. Uh, what have we got this week, Marin? It's all a bit up in the air this week. We've got updates about the air war, an air hero goes missing and the airwaves are turning blue, apparently. So there's something to look forward to. We are at the end of November 1944. And this is also the week the Red Army is advancing on Germany's borders. Hitler has left the wolf's lair for the last time and the British Home Guard was formally stood down. But should we catch up with the jocks, with the men of the 52nd and find out what they're doing? Yes, of course. Yeah, well, they're doing exactly the same thing as they were last week. Okay. Um, yeah, <laughs> they're um, they're located around the uh, the Dutch town of Sertogenbosch, mm-hmm. so that's on the south bank of the River Maas. Uh, the Germans are on the north bank, and basically the division is in a static location, and they're rotating in and out. So the different brigades within the division are rotating in defensive positions. Um, they're taking lots of time out of the line to restock, refit, mm-hmm. retrain, and things like that. And um, one of the HQ. Um, locations for the division is actually at the old uh, concentration camp at Vought or Vacht as it's um, pronounced I'm, I'm led to believe so this is a relatively small concentration camp um, it was actually also an SS barracks uh, and there's mm. about 31,000 prisoners during the war there's no such thing as a good concentration camp but in no. terms in terms of understanding the layout and how they've been preserved so that people understand them. It's a very um, informative place to start looking at, at that kind of history. Yeah, and this is like their first introduction to the Holocaust, basically. You know, now that they've started to get into yeah. to, to, to the Netherlands and into Germany, they're starting to see a lot more evidence. And um, I think about 749 prisoners died in the camp, some of them through torture. Uh, but it was actually mainly a trans- transport camp at okay. Auschwitz and Matthausen. Okay. Well, should we dive straight in? Well, I think we should. November the 27th. War in the air. Better weather enabled the Allied air forces to give greater support to the ground forces. RAF Spitfires attacked long-range rocket firing sites in Holland yesterday. Bombs were dropped plumb on two sites. And then it goes on the next day, 28th of November. American fighters in a sweep over northern Germany yesterday were attacked by 300 to 400 German fighters. First reports show that 94 enemy aircraft were destroyed, making a total of 235 in two days. And then it picks up from the previous day. V2s can be fired from almost any flat surface, but require special wagons to carry them to the launching sites. Allied air forces are therefore concentrating on the railway supply lines. Their successes have kept down this form of attack. Flying fortresses, based in the Marianas, 
have also made a second attack on Tokyo within four days. Washington points out that Tokyo buildings are not made of wooden paper. After the earthquake of 1923, the new city has wider streets and open spaces to stop fires spreading. Now, at the top of this page, hang on a second, at the top of this page, we've also got a note. It says, better weather has given a new impetus to allied air support, especially close support. Now, what do we know about the weather at this time of year? I've been led to believe that the weather in the winter of 1944, 1945 is terrible <laughs> it at, is. at all times. It is. It is. It's all comparatively. Yeah. It's the it's the worst winter there has been for ever. Well, no, not ever, but for for a period of time. <laughs> I'll tell you what I found. I have found a website. There is always a website. There's always a found, website. I have found a website that gives us readings from. Um, quite a lot of weather stations around Germany going back to early 1920s. So I will find a way to to find a link for that. It's really quite yeah, useful. Great, yeah. I mean, my takeaway, there was a couple of takeaways. I, first and foremost, towards, I mean, this is getting into nearly December yeah. 1944. Yeah. Uh, the, the Germans can, can field 300 to 400 fighter planes, which is surprising still, to me. Yeah. Still, still, you know, there's still a big air threat. I mean, obviously, I think a lot of people switch off after the Battle of Britain, don't they? They don't think about it, but that's, yeah. a, that's a huge amount of aircraft. The other thing, and I didn't know this, and I don't know why I didn't know it, and it's obvious uh, that Tokyo wasn't made out of paper. <laughs> <laughs> I just uh, you'd always assumed that the fire bombs took place because the the way they built their houses. Well, and, but of course, Tokyo is a you know is a big city, and well, you know, do, do you know why they were made of wooden paper though? I don't know. Wood I, I, and I, paper, I should say. I have not no wood. idea. They were made of wood and paper. Because Japan was already and had for for years and years and years been suffering earth tremors, so mm. so those um, construction methods worked really sort of quite well, and also humidity. So the Japanese houses used to have things like dividers. You yep. see them in the it's the classic film trope of the sliding door. The sliding door, yeah, yeah. There is a name for it. I can't remember what it is, um, and and it's to help with the humidity. But in 1923. In 1923, there was a huge earthquake. It was called the Great Kanto Earthquake. Mm-hmm. Um, something like, I don't know, 120, 130,000 people died. Wow. And after that point, there was um, a sort of mor- not a moratorium on, on building in the old style, but certainly a conversion post earthquake reconstruction went far more towards the sort of European style of reinforced concrete and steel buildings. Well, now I know. 28th of November, 1944. Letter from home. A lot of people in Scotland are beginning to be worried about the problems of post-war employment. Some of the war factories are now closing down and the re-employment of many hundreds of people is already quite a headache. This is not a particularly Scottish problem. It will be common all across Britain sooner or later and it will take a lot of handling. The special worry among us is that the old drift south may start all over again, leaving Scotland industry high and dry while the manufacturing energy of Britain as a whole concentrates around London and Birmingham. Two special cases were argued hotly, those of the Scythe Dockyard and Presswick Airport. If you are discussing this amongst yourselves, don't forget that the terrible shortage of homes in Scotland comes into the argument. If we haven't sufficient homes for our own folk, how can we house the workers needed for expanding industry? Good luck, George Blake. Is that the George Blake? That is the George Blake. Now, our single listener out there, they know who George Blake is. But mm-hmm. for the uninitiated, anybody who might be new or or even yourself, Merrin, George Blake <laughs> is um 
George Blake is uh, is fairly well known within the fifty second Lowland Division. Now he um, he'd actually served in the division in the First World War in the Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders, and he fought at uh, Gallipoli of all places. Uh, and after the war, he became a novelist, a poet, and a screenwriter, and was was pretty well known, pretty well regarded in Scotland and and in and in Britain. Uh, on the whole, um, and once war was declared, he joined the Ministry of Information, and he did a kind of lot of stuff around morale and communication with Scottish people. He produced some some films about mm-hmm. Scotland and their contribution to the war, and he maintained contact with the division right the way through the war. And in fact, later on, and we may well come to that uh, in an episode in the future, he actually visits them out in in, in Ooh, the Netherlands. Yeah, um, but more importantly, with with George, he wrote. The divisional history, which is um, of the Second World War, which is called Mountain and Flood, and it's the the kind of unofficial official divisional history. I say unofficial official. The divisional commander, Sir Edmund Hakewell Smith, he actually asked him to do it. Yeah. Um, but it was uh, more just for the officers and the men uh, as a sort of record of their war, war service. And this is this is the archetypal. Um, well, it's not archetype. It's, it's the one that stands out for me really, because among all the divisional histories. This is one that's got a, a beautiful dust jacket with a yep. map, a battle map showing where each regiment was. Regiment, yeah. regiment level? Is it regiment level? Yeah. Well, we say yeah, but regiments and battalions. In fact, the whole of the division. Basically, it's a. In fact, if you were to Google the fifty second Lowland Division map, that's you would see it. And, it. and it's also in the inside jacket of with the jocks, and it's a, a large map of Europe and with little men and tanks and airplanes and cities drawn on it and it you can basically follow their route all the way through Europe. So now it's interesting did, that he's been asked to communicate with the division while they're at the front. Now did you know that when those were first produced they also included like an A2 size version of the map? Well I did know that because I've got a copy. Thank you very much. <laughs> As well you know. Uh, I, you can actually buy reprints of it. I, you can go on oh, there and you can get a re- yeah you can buy a reprint you can buy them whatever size you want nowadays. But yeah, I mean, I would encourage anybody if you if you get on eBay or whatever, if you can get hold of one of the originals, they are fantastic. Just go back a second though. What was this about Rosyth and Prestwick? Well, these are kind of um, these are kind of two important places in Scotland. So Prestwick is it, at the time was like the big international airport, and Rosyth Dockyard is a huge naval dockyard where they they mm-hmm. built ships. And in fact, the the last two aircraft carriers that the Royal Navy commissioned, the Queen Elizabeth and the Prince of Wales. They are actually they were built or they were laid down in, in Rosyth. Um and Presswick Airport. Now Presswick Airport is very interesting. I come from the Isle of Arran, which is just across from Presswick Airport. Yeah. And the mountains of Arran are littered with Second World War aircraft that have Oh really? Yeah, what basically it was used as like the last point in the UK where the they would fuel up and then fly over to Iceland, Greenland, and then onto America, Canada and America. And, Only some um, of them obviously didn't fly very Yeah, fast. some of them didn't fly high enough, quick enough. So as they were as they left uh, Presswick, they go over the Firth of Clyde and they they bump into the mountains on Arran. And in fact, there's a couple of B seventeen, B twenty fours, and there's a couple of other planes um that have um oh, really? placed, placed themselves on the hillside. Um <laughs> but the, the interesting thing the interesting thing about Presswick, you know, we have a, a bumper fat. Go uh, on. Presswick Airport is the only place in mainland United Kingdom where Elvis Presley actually touched ground. He actually stood on Britain. Are you quite proud of that one? I'm very proud of that one. In fact, if you I mean there's if you ever go to Presswick Airport, you'll be under no illusions whatsoever as to that's what's <laughs> happened because it, everything is called Elvis 
I think even the, the bar there is called Elvis's or something like that. Judging by the amount of air crashes on on the Isle of Arran, he well could could that could well have been the last place he touched. I'd forgotten actually that he was in the army. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So so there we go. November the 29th, Britain's war achievement. Full story after five years. In a white paper published yesterday, the story of Britain's achievement in five years of war was told for the first time. It tells how the maximum mobilisation of the population was organised. It gives facts about the size of the armed forces and the casualties. And it contains information about the burden of taxation, the reduction of the export trade and the selling of overseas investments. Here are some of those facts. More than six and a half million men and women have been put into the services and full-time civil defences. Nearly half a million have been killed, wounded or taken prisoner. In war industries, two million workers have been engaged in the production of aircraft alone and factories producing munitions together with other basic industries have employed 11 million people. The total output of war material was as follows, or has been as follows. 722 warships with 5,000 smaller naval craft, 35,000 field guns and anti-aircraft guns, 25,000 tanks, 4 million machine guns and 2 million rifles. And in addition, our shipyards have built 6.5 million tonnes of shipping, although half the workers have been engaged in repairs. This article finishes. One thing stands out. The total war effort of Britain, man for man, is greater than that of any other country in the war. Well. <laughs> um, <clears throat> there now, it is. I'm inclined to believe them, but um, <laughs> is that quantifiable? Yeah, I mean, no, I mean the, the man for man, the... the, the the effort is greater than of any other country in the world. I think if you spoke to Sergei in the in the Ural tractor yeah. factory, I think he might argue with that one. But I mean, I mean, I, actually, the numbers are astonishing. And in fact, I was listening to somebody today mention that at a push, maybe the British Army could could cobble together a hundred working tanks. Really? Yeah, and and really? we're, we're talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he's an expert as well. And and what we're saying, how many tanks were there? There was uh, five thousand. Now I found this white paper. Uh, well, of course, of course, you did. Yeah, it's on the internet. Don't worry. Yeah, um, you have to you have to struggle a bit with Google because Google wants to throw up the November nineteen forty four white paper on the National Health Service, but the paper is out there and it's called Statistics Relating to the War Effort of the United Kingdom, and its cover price was one shilling, which I think is is um, a fair price for all these yes. stats. So it's interesting they say that um, some of the money was was. I mean, you, you you there was a little bit about there about how how much was was taken out of taxation. I wonder how much of the contribution to the war was taken by people buying the white paper. Oh, I can't even begin <laughs> to do that. But what I did find, though, is that they obviously they've rounded up and rounded down some of the figures, but mm -hmm. it sounded like a lot of machine guns and a lot of rifles. So I went into the white paper and had a look. And the figures in the white paper actually read 3,729,921 machine guns and 2,001,949 rifles. Well, Although there you artist, go. I mean, artistic license, I think, isn't it probably a bad thing if you present And this is stuff that's actually been built in the United Kingdom. Yes. So it's yeah. not, so it's, we're obviously, at the time, they were importing huge amounts from America and Canada and places like that. But so it's, I mean, it's an astonishing number. And in fact, and it links into what, um, 
George Blake was saying in his letter in the last section about how, um, you know, this huge amount of industry. And then when that all goes, w- what happens to people? Where, where, do they, where are they going to get a job? But this is it's an ongoing theme. Um, I mean, we we talk about 1944, looking back now, almost 80 years, and we say, oh, the writing's on the wall and we all know it's going to be over. The lads on the ground, it may not feel like it's going to be over, but there must be a sense in Britain now that, yes, we're, we're coming to a conclusion of sorts. Yeah. And therefore, there's got to be a whole stream of resources and effort going into, right, how do we rebuild? How do, yeah. how do we recreate a nation now? Yeah. Well, it's astonishing. It's all right, sir. It's all in a day's work. And if it wasn't, I'd still be happy to die for you, sir. On the battlefields, any day of the week. If you're interested in those battlefields and would like to find out more about Peter White, his jocks, the KOSB and the 52nd Lowland Division, why not come on and tour with me and him next year, October 2024? I say, soldier, would you mind not dying on my boots? Thank you very much. Thirtieth November, nineteen forty-four, and we return to the air in our section here and there, which is small snippets of news. One of the biggest secrets of the war has now been revealed. It has been nicknamed the X-ray bomb site. The invention was perfected by a team of British scientists under some Watson Watt, and it enabled British and American airmen to see targets even in dense cloud. An instrument in the plane sends out electrical impulses, which are reflected from the objects to the ground. These reflected waves are then recorded on a glass dial and gives the bomb air a contour outline of the ground over which the plane is flying. Ships and town landmarks can be picked out by this method. Mm. Well, now, two things stand out. Mm. First one is, what the hell is an X-ray bomb site? <laughs> it's radar. It's radar, and, that, and that's what we found out from this. So it's so secret, they can't even call it radar at this mm. stage. But, but they finally announced it, so actually specifically the radar when they're bombing, not just the radar that would be stuck on yeah. a sort of beachy head or something like that. Um, and I think that was really interesting they've finally been able to talk about stuff like this. The other thing was, it was developed under a guy called Sir Watson Watt, which yes. is an absolutely ridiculous name. Now, <laughs> please don't please don't shatter my illusions. I have visions of this man, slightly portly, with glasses, pipe in hand, in his shed, tinkering away with this piece of highly technical equipment. Nobody believes it's going to work. He has a huge, terrible time trying to convince the 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 the, um, the air ministry that this is You're going to gonna change the war. Dog in a minute, aren't he's, you? He's going to have a dog, um, <laughs> no, a, a devoted, and, and he is the archetypal eccentric British boffin. That's what I'm, I'm thinking. I'm not going to shatter your illusions, but I think there was more than than so what's and what involved in inventing oh. radar. Oh. Have you got anything else on that day? Yeah, there is actually another one from the air. Wing commander Guy Gibson, VC has been reported as missing since September 19th. Wow. Now, that's that's written as just one sentence. Yeah, okay. one sentence. And f- when you think about it, I mean, after the dam's raid, Gibson yep. was a propaganda coup 
as far as yeah. we were concerned. In fact, he was pulled out of regular service and yeah. sent to America and Canada, I think it was, yeah. um, under the cover of the Royal Air Force Directorate for the Prevention of Accidents. I mean, technically, they sent him away to write his autobiography. No. no. What? It, would, did he have any involvement in the prevention of accidents? Because I'm going to be honest, <laughs> the little I know about Guy Gibson, he's not a big fan of risk management, safety. Oh, um, I, I don't know, but I know that he didn't really enjoy the job over there. But um, he, he was sent away to basically write his autobiography. And what happened was he got so hacked yep. off with not being allowed to fly again that he got reposted uh, to Lincolnshire, somewhere in Lincolnshire. And actually, he he would he died in a mosquito. He'd only had about nine and a half hours training in the mm-hmm. mosquito. And it came down um, in Bergen Op Zoom. Have we heard of Bergen Op Zoom before? We have heard of Bergen Op Zoom many, many times. And in fact, there is um, a little bit of serendipity here or um, just basic consequence, really, because the sentence after this report about Gibson being missing just says, a mosquito yesterday flew the Atlantic in the record time of six hours, eight minutes, i.e. six miles per second, per minute, per minute. Yeah, that gives you an indication. So he came down in Bergen up Zoom, um, which of course we've talked about. It's the home of Tommy Atkins or Tommy McAtkins, as we like mm. to call him, and and obviously the uh, headquarters of the fifty second while they're in the Netherlands. So it's it's that that place keeps drawing us back in. And he he was actually, but he's not buried there, is he? No, no, he's not. I can't no, remember where he's buried. I'll find out. Yeah. First of December, nineteen forty four and we return to the here and there section. Expectation of life in Scotland has been doubled in the last 200 years. Scotsmen can now be expected to live until the age of 60. That's not very much. (laughs) Well, (laughs) as a Scotsman, I've got a vested interest in this. Uh, Yeah, I mean, 60 isn't isn't very much at all. Um, I know from when I was growing up in Scotland, I come from the southwest of Scotland, and we had the uh, heart disease uh, capital of Europe, which was our which was our badge of honour. Um, but yeah, I mean that doesn't sound a lot at all. But I mean it does say kind of over two hundred years, so that was like two hundred years before that was thirty years old. I mean that's that's horrendous. So in some ways it's a huge success, but sixty is not really old at all, is it? It's not. I I looked at some of the figures I could, I could find because rather unhelpfully, England and Wales have got their mortality statistics all over the place, but Scotland's a bit hard to find down. Did you know there's something called the Glasgow effect? I was unaware of this, but please enlighten <laughs> me. The, the, the Glasgow effect is um, it, it's basically a, an accumulation of smoking, high levels of alcohol consumption, poor diet, High rates of deprivation, and it all leads to, to people dying sooner than, than perhaps we would like them to. And I think the thing to remember about Glasgow in the last century, certainly, mm. especially during uh, during the war, was the amount of heavy industry, which also yeah. con- contributed to early death. So yeah. early death, not just um, through accidents and incidents, but also through health. Um, so my grandfather, for example, worked in the Glasgow shipyards during the Second World War, really? and uh, he was a red leader. So his job was to paint red lead onto the hulls of of ships, um, yeah, and he and he died uh, in his fifties. So yeah, that's not good. He's absolutely banging those statistics. Yeah, but looking at them, the, the two hundred thing that you mentioned, I mean, I, I, the statistics that I could find 
don't quite go back that far. But mm-hmm. bear in mind that there were what you might call natural blips in the statistics for the First World War and the Second World War. Yeah, it yeah. is right. There was almost a doubling in mortality um, expectancy in Scotland um, over that period of time. It's quite That's, sad, isn't it? Yeah. And, but I mean, the, no, hang on a second. The other thing I did find was, guess what? what? Women live longer. Yeah, well, we knew that, didn't we? Because they're not as stupid. (laughs) (laughs) November the 30th, which was a Thursday. New session of Parliament, government's plans outlined. The King's speech yesterday opened the 10th and possibly the last session of the present Parliament. The speech opened with a review of Allied successes of the last year and looked forward more confidently than ever before to victory. The urgent problem of housing will be tackled with vigour and a high level of employment obtained, partly by distributing industry over the whole country. In the debate that followed, the Prime Minister reviewed recent operations on the Western Front and the present position. He said many important gains had been made. The capture of Metz and Strasbourg were described as glorious achievements. The Prime Minister also said that fighting was most severe opposite Cologne and northwards, and it was here that our gains were most important. He then turned to Western Holland. The port of Antwerp, he announced, is receiving convoys of ocean-going ships now, thus guaranteeing greater and speedier supplies to the armies in the West. This had been made possible by the storming of the islands of the Scheldt estuary, which he called a marvellous, gallant and splendid feat of arms. But in the process, the British and Canadian forces had suffered 40,000 casualties. Well, Mm. we can see why that was reported in the Lowlander. So that's kind of Churchill giving the nods basically to the 52nd Lowland Division. But did, you, but did you spot there that the the same messages coming through about the urgent problem of housing and distributing yeah. industry over the whole country? So clearly there's something going on in the background here. And I wonder if we look at the newspapers for this week or the week yeah. either side, whether whether there's kind of a, a theme or a thread saying, oh, we've got to sort out the housing for when the boys come home. Yeah, I think it's definitely something that's in the back of the mind. When you mentioned the white paper on the NHS, which is another thing that yes. people are worried about, they're concerned about, you know, um, uh, a, a proper a proper country to come back to that they've been fighting for, etc. This is yeah. a coalition government now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, I tell you what else is here on this page, and that and it's not so much a thought for the day, but it's a um, a little box out, and it does, of course, mention St Andrew's Day. It says Scotland has a patron saint of whom she may very well be proud. Andrew is a Greek word meaning brave or manly, and the name describes the man. Well, I mean, I could have told you that, seeing as how <laughs> my name is Andrew. No, I mean, it's, it's, it is important, and it's it's slap bang centre of the page as well, because, of course, the 52nd Lowland Division, again, our listener out there who knows everything there is to know about the 52nd knows this, their um, divisional badge is actually the, um, the salt tower of the St Andrew's flag. I mean, every single man in the division has it on their battle dress. 2nd of December 1944, the Far East. The Royal Scots troops of the 36th Infantry Division advancing down the Irrawaddy Valley have captured Pinway after three weeks' battle. This town lies near the junction of where the branch line from Katha joins the main Magong Mandalay Railway. Chinese troops are keeping up the pressure on the Bamo, while the report says that one Chinese column has bypassed the town for a distance of 40 miles. Um, 
Well, that was quite interesting because, of course, the Royal Scots, the 7th, 9th Battalion of Royal Scots are actually in the 52nd Lowland Division. So mm. you think, well, they're reporting on um, they're reporting on what their brethren would be doing out there. The interesting thing is, of course, that the Royal Scots isn't actually in the 36th Infantry Division. What they actually mean is the Royal Scots Fusiliers. Now, this is where we this is where it's going to get confusing. So pay attention. There's two different regiments or battalions from regiments in the 52nd Lowland. There's the Royal Scots, which is the senior British Infantry Regiment, right hand of the line. They are the they are the senior, and they have the seniority over all other uh, battalions in, in in the army. And there is another regiment called the Royal Scots Fusiliers, and this is what they're actually talking about. So the Thirty Sixth Division um, fighting out in Burma, they actually have the uh, first battalion of the Royal Scots Fusiliers. Um, Interestingly, there is a battalion of Royal Scots in the Second Infantry Division, also fighting oh, out in Burma. But that's not who they're talking about. This um, is confusing. <laughs> I know, and and actually, it's it's fairly common. People often miss that Fusilier bit off when they're talking, and they, and of course, it's a completely different battalion, completely different regiment, completely different history. The people of the Royal Scots would get their nose very much put out of place by being. Okay. So here's a not silly question: Were the Royal Scots and the Royal Scots Fusiliers ever fighting alongside each other? Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they would have. I mean, um, not so much in the division. I mean, they weren't in the same brigade in the Fifty Second Lowland Division, yeah. but they would have definitely been in the same places um, uh, on the build-up before Operation Blackcock in January nineteen forty-five. They certainly would have been in the the, the same sort of areas. Um, uh, but yes, I can imagine if they were in the same brigade, things could get very, very confusing. The Royal Scots Fusiliers traditionally recruit from Ayrshire, mm -hmm. which is my area, and and the Royal Scots almost exclusively from the Aber uh, from the Edinburgh area. So it's kind of uh, um, it's two very different parts of the country. But the boys that that we're talking about in northwestern Europe, who would have received the Lowlander, mm -hmm. would they have known the lads from um, the Royal Scots then out in the Irrawaddy Valley? Almost certainly, because the um, because the the, the battalion the of the Royal Scots Fusiliers uh, out there mm -hmm. uh, in the Thirty Sixth Infantry Division that was the regular battalion, so they would have known guys from their town that had been in that regiment or that battalion, and they would have known people that had joined up, probably family members, possibly family members who'd say people they would have worked with yeah definitely there would definitely be a connection and of course you have um a regimental loyalty as well so you are interested in where other battalions of your regiment are fighting um and, you know there's a sense of pride in, in what they're achieving so they've been they would have been interested to read that and probably felt quite proud of what they were doing 7th of december the british film western approaches has been banned by american censors the producers admit there is some mild profanity in some parts of the dialogue, but they say the film was made at sea with men of the Merchant Navy playing the parts and the language used in real life is rarely suitable for the drawing room. Now, I've looked this film up, okay? It's not a bad mm -hmm. film. It's a bit like Greyhound. So it was, um, it was, it was pure propaganda. Technicolor yep. to attack the Yanks, but, you know, less, less Tom Hanks. It was something that the Admiralty figured would be a good idea to to make about the Battle of the Atlantic because mm -hmm. um, the losses at this point in time were still being quite strictly censored. Yep. So they come up with this homage to the, the bravery of the Merchant Marine. You've got yeah. a group of men in a lifeboat and there's a ship about to rescue them and then there's a U-boat laying in wait. Um, right. You can imagine how it goes. And they shot most of it in the Irish Sea, a bit in a water tank at Pinewood. 
and then some of the film on an actual convoy crossing the Atlantic, which, which which then lost ships to oh, U-boats. Yeah, it's not good. But the point was this: the British Board of Film Censors objected to the use of bad language. Have you got any idea what, what the bad language was? Uh, I mean, knowing sailors, <laughs> there I mean, there's no limit. It was the word bloody. There were 12 bloodies that were removed, although the director insisted that three be retained for vital dramatic effect. (laughs) I mean, it could have been much worse. It could have been a lot worse. It could have been. I mean, mean, bloody is such an innocuous word, I mean, certainly nowadays. But, of course, what you have to remember is that the American cinema, it comes under something called the Hayes Code. Yeah. The Hayes Code is a kind of non-legally binding but, Everybody adheres to it. Code that was in the studios in Hollywood from the sort of late twenties all the way through to I think basically the end of the fifties, and you really were limited to what you could say and do on on the screen. And they had lots of very weird rules about you know one foot in the ground if you're sitting on the bed with somebody and all sorts of stuff. So yeah, it's a, it's quite funny. I, I haven't actually checked the film. I need to go. And, I need to go and Google the film and, and see if it's um see if it's any cop. Did you hear that ping just then? No. Nope. <laughs> My telly's just gone to try and find it. <laughs> oh, is it? Oh, bloody yeah. hell. Finally, this week. We haven't had a thought for the day this week, have we? I don't think there is. Yeah, one. we haven't. There is a thought. There's Hamlet. Yeah. Uh, to Let's... thine own self be true. And it... No, I'm not reading that. <laughs> well, it's either that or Jesus said. And finally. Thought for the day from the 2nd of December, 1944. To thine own self be true, and it must follow, as the night the day, thou canst not then be false to any man. Hamlet, Act 1, Scene 3. Now, do we know what that means, Merrin? No, Andy. We, we don't. <laughs> I was hoping that you did. <laughs> it's not very inspiring. Well, I mean, well, no, well, in the technical sense, it is a thought for the day, because you're going to have people sitting there going, well, what does that mean? And they are actually going to be thinking about it. So in some sense, that meets the requirement for thought for the day. <laughs> On that note, should we wrap it up this week? I think it's very wise. Yeah, I think we should do. Yeah. All right. Bye, Andy. Bye. Yeah, I like that. That's good. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lowlander. The Lowlander was written, produced and presented by Andy Aitchison and Merrin Walters. This was a hellish good production. The classified football results for the week ending 19th of November 1944. English League North. Aston Villa 4, Coventry City 0. Barnsley 6, Brotherham United 5. Bradford 0, Darlington 3. Burnley 0, Accrington Stanley 0. Bury 2, Liverpool 0. Chester 2, Tranmere Rovers 2. Derby County 3, Chesterfield 1. Doncaster Rovers 2, Mansfield 1. Everton 3, Crew Alexandra 5. Grimsby Town 1, Sheffield Wednesday 2. Halifax Town 4, Blackpool 2. Hull City 1, Gateshead 3. Leeds United 6, Hartlepool 2. 
Manchester United 3, Manchester City 2. Middlesbrough 0, Huddersfield Town 1. Newcastle United 11, Bradford City 0. Northampton 3, Leicester City 1. Nottingham Forest 2, Lincoln City 2. Oldham Athletic 3, Blackburn Rovers 0. Preston North End 2, Bolton Wanderers 3. Sheffield United 6, Notts County 0. Southport 2, Rochdale 2. Stoke City 2, Port Vale 0. Walsall 4, Birmingham 1. Wolverhampton Wanderers 3, West Bromwich Almeon 2. Wrexham 8, Stockport 0. York City 3, Sunderland 5. English League West Aberamon 1, Bristol City 5. Bath City 4, Cardiff City 2. Swansea Town 1, Lovells Athletic 2. Scottish Southern League Albion Rovers 4, Morton 5. Dumbarton 3, Clyde 0. Hamilton 2, Hearts 2. Hibernian 0, Motherwell 1. Partick Thistle 1, Falkirk 2. Queen's Park Rangers 1, Rangers 4. St Mirren 2, Erdionians 1. 3rd Lanark 1, Celtic 3. Scottish League North East. Dundee United 2, Arbroath 5. East Fife 1, Dunfermline 5. Falkirk 1, Dundee 2. Hearts 0, Aberdeen 7. Rangers 2, Wraith Rovers 1. English League South. Aldershot 3, Luton Town 2. Arsenal 4, Watford 0. Brentford 1, Crystal Palace 2. Brighton Hove Albions 3, Chelsea 5. Charlton Athletic 1, QPR 2. Clapton 0, Tottenham Hotspur 2. Fulham 0, Portsmouth 2. Reading 2, Millwall 2. Southampton 2, West Ham 1. This concludes the classified results for the week ending 19th of November 1944. Germans off. They were hideous good.